Hello and welcome to Jetavana Rama Buddhist Monastery. We meet again on our journey to take another step forward to conquer the things that have stolen our happiness, the enemies that have treaded on our peaceful minds for all these years, ever since we can remember. Because we are all in search of the truth. The truth that shall set us free to achieve happiness and a never-ending one at that, fulfillment and satisfaction. Our journey is for that purpose and those of you who have come along with us on this journey will know by now that you have reaped a great many rewards so far and what I mean by that is you have I'm sure begun to understood the workings of the mind as perhaps you might never have done in the past. At the very beginning, I promised you that what I intend on presenting to you through this series of talks is not an ideology or a religion, but instead I intend to share with you a philosophy. I intend to share with you a science, a logic, something that has rhyme and reason. We do not entertain blind faith. I don't expect you to take anything at face value. So you should by now have become accustomed to our methods and that is we pay attention we listen, we pick up new ideas, and then what do we do? That's right, we apply them in the lab of life. And I'm sure there are those among you who have diligently engaged yourselves in that practice. And, well, you will have reaped rewards, results as a result of that. So I encourage you to continue with that practice because from here on we move into some of the deeper and perhaps some of the more profound and maybe even some of the subtle concepts that embody this philosophy, the Buddha's guide to happiness. So I ask you to remain alert to remain attentive, to remain open-minded, to allow these ideas to sink in your minds, to allow them to transform you in the way you think, provided, of course, that it makes sense to you. At no point would I expect you to be brainwashed. I don't intend to do that, and I don't expect you to do that either. Don't allow me to do that to you and I'm sure you won't. So 
I don't mean this in a condescending way, but, inst- but rather I mean this in a very open-hearted way. I am very welcoming of your scrutiny in these teachings, in this philosophy, because it is that scrutiny, it is that nitpicking and going through this with a fine-tooth comb. In doing so, you will realize the truths that are entailed and contained within these words. So, before we take another step forward on our journey, let us pay homage to the great master, our teacher, the greatest teacher that we've all had, the perfect one, the most magnificent one, the immaculate one, the one whose mercy has no bounds, whose compassion is timeless and endless. This is none other than the Supreme Buddha that we speak of. So let us take a moment to pay homage to the Supreme Buddha and we will then continue with today's discussion. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Where did we pause last week? Ah, yes. The noble truths is what we have been discussing of late. A couple of weeks back, I introduced the noble truths to you. Then we discussed why they're so noble, what's so noble about the noble truths which led us into detailing the first truth, that is the first noble truth. So that's what we talked about last week. And you'll know by now that we are taking a very new and different, a fresh perspective at what we accept as the truth. Whatever seems true to us is whatever we will accept. You will never accept something that you know is not to be true. You will not accept that. You might pretend to accept it just to fool other people, but you know fully well that if you don't agree with something, you're not going to accept it. You're not going to embrace it. So these noble truths, they have to be proven true to you before you will accept them. And I know this. I know this because it is the same for me. Both you and I, we have a mind. And minds work in much the same way. It will only accept something if it believes that it is true. That is why you will keep on asking your loved ones, perhaps your partner, do you really love me? 
I'm not sure. Do you really love me? Prove it. Do you really love me? And you'll keep on asking them. Because as much as they might say, yes, I do love you, honey, if it does not tally up for you, if their actions are in disagreement with their words, if their behavior is not congruous with what they say out loud to you, then that does not give you a comfortable feeling. You need reassurance. You need conviction. And conviction has a very important place in Buddhist philosophy. You may have heard of conviction in the Pali as Shraddha or Sadha. Let's not get too worried about those terms, the technical terms, but conviction is a very, has a very important part to play in Buddhist philosophy. Why so? Well, it's for the very reason that I have been reminding you that it is through your own realization that you will begin to accept and make sense of all of this. That realization is what will give you conviction. So once you realize it, then with conviction you will know that this is the truth. And then once you've done that, once this transformation has happened within you, we don't know when, we don't know at what or which is auspicious moment it's going to happen for anyone for that matter. But once it happens for you, then not even the Buddha, believe you me folks, not even the Buddha, our teacher, who discovered these truths and then proclaimed them, would be able to speak to you or challenge you on those truths and prove to you in using some sort of wizardry even, that it is not the truth. So once you have accepted something with conviction, it can no longer be proved false. It is that level of conviction that I intend for you to have, so much so that I myself should not be able to someday come back to you and say, hey, sir, you know what we talked about a long time ago? About these truths, the Four Noble Truths. You remember that talk? You saw me on YouTube? Yeah, well, you know what? I got it wrong. They are not the Four Noble Truths. Should that day ever come, you should be able to look at me in the eye and go, Bhante, I'm sorry you are mistaken this time around. You were right the last time. Clearly, it wasn't with conviction that you shared that with us or with me. But today, I'm sorry, we will have to agree to disagree. Because... Once I have seen the truth, no one, no man, woman, God or any other entity would be able to disprove of that. And that is not because of blind faith. You know, yes sir, no sir, three bags full sir, whatever you say sir, no it is not that. That is blind faith. You know, two and two makes four, right? Can the teacher who taught you two and two, and two makes four come and now disprove that? No matter how matter, no matter no matter how much he or she would try, is that ever going to work? Not all the mathematical evidence, not all the scientific evidence, not all the empirical evidence in this world can make you change your mind because you have seen it, you have realized it that two and two makes four. 
It is that level of conviction that I intend for you to have on this journey. And to be able to do that, I can't simply just spew things at you and expect to just catch them and then run with it. No, this is why we take our time with this. And this is why I present to you these ideas logically, rationally, so that you have the time to compute them in your own minds, analyze them, evaluate them, apply them in your lab of life, and make it true for yourselves. I promise you that is the path we will take for as long as we'll be with this series, because it is the only way that has worked for me. I can only share with you what has worked for me. So I speak with first-hand experience, and I only speak with you what I know to be true. So, where did we stop last week then? The first noble truth. Now, from time to time, I did mention that it is called the first noble truth of suffering. And in last week's talk, we debated between two ideas, two notions, the one that we held this far and the one that I presented to you last week. So we were debating which is true. Is it that we are always in a constant state of suffering and then we do things and that pushes us into the realms of happiness? Or is it that we are in a default state of happiness and it's the things we do that push us into suffering? Remember this discussion where we had? And I invited you to go back to, this, to that talk and listen to it one or two times just to get things straight up in your head. Because, you know, these things will take a little bit of time to, to understand, to, to, you know, to swallow the, the whole thing. It'll, it'll take a little while. And that's, that's quite all right. You know, sometimes the things that I share with you, you know, I've been contemplating, I've been speaking with my teachers and I've been trying to make sense of for many years, folks. You know, these talks are the product of four or five years worth of me being in robes and practicing the path. And even prior to that, as a layperson, having listened to these talks and similar talks and listened to this philosophy and having tried to understand them and contemplate them for several years. Now, I don't mean to say that you're going to take as many as much as now I don't mean to say that you're going to take as much time as that because perhaps these ideas weren't presented to me in such simple words as I present to you today but hey that's where you have the advantage so this is what we discussed last week right is it a default state of suffering and then we do things and that gives us happiness because that seemed to be the case. That's why people do things so that they can constantly keep jumping from a state of unhappiness to a state of happiness. It seems like that. It certainly seems like that. That seems to be the apparent truth. But, oh, is it the other or the opposite of that, which is you're in a state of happiness and then you do things to get yourselves into a state of suffering. The thing is, whenever we feel that we are in a state of 
suffering, we have to keep doing something to push us into a state of happiness. If it is that the things that we do push us into a state of happiness, then that happiness should be everlasting. It has to be something that is worthwhile doing. And as a matter of fact, you know, if it were that the default state was suffering, folks, you know, we might as well just give up, right? What do you think about that? Just imagine if we were all just in a constant state of suffering and we'll constantly have to keep doing things to be happy, then we might as well give up. Why? You might ask, well, Bhante, you know, we can just keep on doing things and, you know, that should surely keep us happy. Well, yeah, I mean, till you die, right? For those among you who believe in rebirth, it's not an idea that I want to discuss just yet. It might be something we'll come across in the future. But for those of you who believe in this idea of rebirth, well, you know, if you're going to be reborn and you, you don't have any idea of how many times that's going to happen to you, then do you not feel that it's just, uh, you know, it's like the human condition suffering? You're helpless. There is nothing worth doing because no matter what you do, you're always back into a state of suffering. So what's the point of doing anything? If you're always going to have to keep pushing yourself into happiness. Whereas on the other hand, if it were that the default state was happiness, but it's the things that you do that push you into suffering, now it's worthwhile listening to these talks. Now it's worthwhile trying to save yourself trying to seek salvation, looking for freedom. To be honest, you know, I wouldn't be sharing these words out with you if it were the truth that suffering was the default state because there, was, there would be nothing I can do for you. <laughs> you know, you, you're, you're doing just well. You're doing all right, you know, trying to just keep afloat. Always sinking, but trying to keep afloat. You're doing just fine with that. You know, with all the things you do in your day-to-day -day lives. Now you just, just, keep, just keep afloat, right? But you're always back suffering. But fortunately, that's not the case. The truth is that the default state is happiness. We've done something that has taken us from that default state of happiness into a state of suffering. So if we only identified what is it that we do that pushes us out of the garden, the metaphorical garden of happiness, into the thorny thicket of suffering, then we can stop doing it. And then therefore we'll be back where we belong, a constant state of unconditional happiness. Now, here's another point I want to clarify just so you can all you know, make proper sense of this. I know, and I, I completely agree with you, I, I, I empathize with you, right? I know that it feels as if it's always suffering and something we must keep doing to be happy. Now, you know, that looks like an equation, doesn't it? Suffering, activity, happiness. 
What I'm presenting to you is happiness, activity, suffering. Now, you see, these seem like two separate equations and how do you reconcile this? Because it seems to be, the, the, as I said, the mirror opposite. Last week we talked about this. Now, let me present to you this hypothesis. There's happiness, that is the default state. Action puts you into suffering. And it is that suffering that you feel right now because of which you feel you have to take action. So that's the next step forward. And then that gives you relief from that suffering, which is not happiness, not this happiness, not the original happiness, but rather relief from suffering or relief from vexation, which is what we've been talking about as pleasure. So let me give that out to you again. I present to you, ladies and gentlemen, this, this idea. There's happiness, which is the default state. Right? So we're all just happy to begin with. We've, we've always been happy. That, was, that is the default state of the mind. Let's imagine, you know, many millions of millions of millions of years ago, we were always just happy. Um, this is, you know, this is, I'm talking, I'm giving you a fairy tale here. It's not quite like this, but I just want to, I'm, I'm giving this as an anecdote so you can better understand it. So we were happy at some point. Then we started to do something for whatever reason, we'll come to that in a moment. For whatever reason, we started to do something and that action took us into suffering. And what is this action? Well, we know, we, as we discussed last week, wanting. We developed wanting for things, cravings, desires for things. Now, you know that craving, wanting, desire, these are things that you can develop over time, right? You know this, of course, because the things you want today, you didn't want some, a few years ago, right? You wanted different things. Today, you want different things. So what that tells you is wanting things, craving, desire, these things are things that develop in the mind, you know, through some process. We'll come to what, those, what that process is, how it works, the science behind it. We'll come to that later. First, I need to make sure that you understand the principle here. So, default state of mind, which is happiness. Somehow wanting, this is, so that's the first step. The second step, somehow wanting, craving, desire. I'm using these words interchangeably, right? You pick whichever one you're comfortable with for the, for the time being. These feelings, they perpetrated on our happiness. And our happiness was lost through the action of wanting, through desire. So when wanting crept into our minds, we moved from a state of happiness to a state of suffering. So now we want things. Okay? So when we want things, there's a problem there. One of those problems we discussed last week, and that is to have, having to take action, labor, activity, endeavor, you know, breaking a sweat, having to toil, having to fight, having to run for it, having to beg for it. Right? When you want something, you know, depending on how badly you want things, you know, that's how far you will go to get them. 
So it's directly proportional. How far you'll go to get something just based on how much you want it. And that's why, you know, when you listen to motivational speakers, they'll, they'll, they'll instill these ideas in your mind. They'll, they'll, they'll pump you up. They'll get you to want the, the things that, you know, people believe are the things that bring happiness in one's life. Whether that is money, whether that is, you know, education, whether that is uh, status, social status, economic status, right? Whatever the case might be. Respect, achievements, trophies, whatever the case might be. So, but when you want something, now you will, you will feel that urge within you, that undying, that unsatisfying urge within you to go and do something to relieve yourself of that vexation, of that suffering. And when you feel, when you begin to feel that vexation, and now I'm using this word vexation interchangeably with suffering, Okay, so when you begin to feel that vexation, folks, you know that you can't just sit on your backside, scratching your head. You have to do something to relieve yourself of that vexation. And therefore, of course, action follows yet again. Now here, that second step where we talked about action, that action is not quite the same as this action. Because really, that action was a mental fabrication, a mental transformation. It was, it was, it was a a change in the way you, you thought about things. Because that's how wanting develops. Wanting doesn't develop in your body, it develops in your mind. The body has needs, the mind has wants. Doesn't it? You know, the body doesn't have any wants. The body has needs. But the mind has wants. So I'm talking about wants. So something happened in our minds that took us from a state of zero wants to all the different things that we want today. And that pushed us from our mental peace of mind to a state of mental vexation. That void we've been speaking about in our previous talks. Now you'll remember, I, I'll ask you to recall some of the things we talked about in the previous talks. That unfulfilled feeling, that unsettling feeling, you know, like when you have a crush on someone and you want to ask her out, that you want something, right? Now you want her to say yes to you. You want to be with her, right? But until you get that yes from her, you know that feeling you have? It's, it's an unsettling feeling. It's like the, the, the mind's gone sick, isn't it? And you can't live with it forever. You need to do something about it. Some people will cry over it. Some people will get angry over it. Some people go into a fit of rage over it. Right? Others will take some sort of action to relieve themselves of that vexation. And that is that second action that I talked about. So this action can be things you do. It can be the things you say out loud. Or it could be the things that you imagine in your own mental world. So using speech, body and mind, you engage in some kind of activity to relieve yourself of that vexation. Which moves you from that vexation to a state of relieved vexation. That is why you take this action. It's much like the rash that we spoke about in our previous talks. Right? So when you have a rash on your body, 
you feel the need to scratch it, right? That's an itch. So when you start scratching it, what happens? Now, that itchy feeling that you had, that begins to relieve. Not always leaving you feeling any better, sometimes even making the whole situation all the more worse for having relieved yourself of it. Because normally if you have a rash and you scratch the hell out of it, you know, now you're left with a wound. That you were better off before scratching yourself. And that's typically the case, folks. When you go through this process of default state being happiness, mental transformation, depending, sorry, based on the indoctrinations that have happened. And I do remember, we, we did speak about this to some extent, you know, with advertising and, you know, the things that we learn about the world and, and what other people tell us about things that make us happy. Right? So we, we allow these ideas to sink into our minds and then we accept what other people say to be true. And with that indoctrination, this, this mental transformation that happens, now you move from a state of happiness to a state of wanting. That wanting cannot be satisfied until you get what you want. Until you get what you want. So once you start to desire something, Immediately followed by that will be the effort to acquire what you desire. So, the action to acquire what you desire comes immediately after that. And if you're lucky, then you get to acquire what you desire. I say lucky, that's a very loose term. Ultimately, it's all cause and effect. But those things will again come back to later. Is there really such thing as luck? <laughs> We'll come back to that. But we know that there are things such as cause and effect. Everything is determined by the principle of cause and effect. And I did present to you cause and effect in a previous talk. So, you know, we've been building up to this point. We have some way to go, but, you know, we are here where we are right now. So that relieves you of that vexation. And that is what you experience as pleasure. Now, is pleasure the same thing as the happiness that you began with? Is it? I want you to think about it. Because, you know, look at this equation, right? I'm just, I want you to picture this in, in, in mid-air, in, in thin air, right? I'm, I'm, I'm drawing this out here. So you have happiness on the one hand, indoctrination that has happened because other people have told us these are the things that make you happy. No, no, it's these things that make you happy and when we allow other people's ideas to sink into our minds and we accept those ideas that these are things that make, you ha make, make someone happy, once we accept those ideas, now we move from a state of happiness to a state of wanting. We know that wanting is not a peaceful state of mind, which is why, how do we know this? How do we know that wanting is not a peaceful state of mind? Well, because you can't keep wanting something and just be like that forever. You know, we talked about Groundhog Day, remember? What if every day was Christmas Eve? You'll always want to know what you were given for presents, but you could never find out. Would you like that feeling? Imagine if you were always left wanting, but never satisfied. You know, take a very simple example. You want to eat something that you think tastes nice. How long can you wait for it? 
you know, you might wait a couple of hours, maybe a couple of days, maybe a week, right? But then, you know, after a while, it's, it's going to get torturous. Just think about your kids for a second, if you have any. When your kids want something, is it easy to pacify them? Until you give it, what do they do? Oh, of course. They'll be at your neck until you give it to them. Why? Because wanting something is not a peaceful state of mind. But did, you, did they always want what they're asking for? No. Whatever that particular thing, they didn't always want it. But what happened? Well, that was the step that came just before that. The indoctrination. From their friends, TV, cartoons, the internet, YouTube, whatever. Through various media, they learned that there are things on the outside world that can make someone happy. And they accepted that. Because if you don't accept that, then this doesn't work on you. You have to accept that. Why do you think advertising is not just a case of, you know, say it once and forget about it? Why do they just keep almost punching it in your face? You know, on and on and on and on, repetitiously, the same message you see on TV, on the billboards, on the radio, on the internet, pop-ups and whatever. You know, through repetition, what they hope to achieve is to say it enough times where the way you think about it changes. Before you accepted what they have to say, it was just, just an ordinary thing. I take a bottle of soft drink, for instance. I'm not going to throw any names. I just take a bottle of soft drink. If, the, if you've ever seen soft drink adverts and you, know, you, would, you would have lived in a dark, deep hole somewhere right? if you haven't seen an advert for a soft drink. Okay, so if you've, if you've seen these adverts, you know that these adverts aren't just played once and they know that's it, that's the end of the story. They keep on playing. Wherever you go, you'll see them. On the sports field, in the arena, on the cricket grounds, in the tennis courts, on the way to work, at work, on your desktop wallpaper, on your phone, on the adverts, on the radio, in the billboards, in the shop windows, right? On the face of trucks as they drive past. It's just all over the place. Why? Because they want to keep on saying it, keep on saying it, keep on saying it, until you embrace that idea until it has become indoctrinated in your mind. And what do they say about these things? That it's wonderful. It's the best thing one could ever have, right? You know, it's not worth having lived if you haven't had this soft drink. That's what they'll say. And alongside that, they'll show people enjoying themselves while having it. In other words, people having fun. People experiencing what? Happiness. (laughs) So what happens then? Isn't happiness what you've been always looking for? Well, there you go. So the moment that someone is able to convince you that there's something in this world that can give you happiness, despite the fact that all these years, all this time, nothing has really been able to give you that properly, you still fall for it. Why? Because the previous thing that came before this, whatever came before this, 
said the same thing about it. Perhaps it's, if it's not this soft drink, some other soft drink from another vendor, from another manufacturer, from another company. Right? They said the same thing about their soft drink. And you got it. Did it make you happy? Did it fulfill you? Did it satisfy you? No. So you remain unsatisfied. You remain unfulfilled. Now you still want something else. So therefore, now when the next thing comes up and says, hey, we've got the best soft drink. It's nothing like the ones you've had before. This is the best, you know, we know it. So now you fall for it. It happens to anyone, folks. You just fall for it. And then you accept the idea, therefore, you have now been indoctrinated. Then you move from a state of happiness where you did not want this. You know, think about your kids. You know, that's, that's one of the best ways I could explain this to you. Think about your kids when they didn't have so many wants. They still had their needs, right? They still needed food, shelter, clothes and medicines. They still needed all of that. That didn't change. But what did they want as they grew up? They wanted toys, right? They wanted to watch TV or go to the movies, watch films, collect stickers. These are the things they wanted. Computer games, mobile phones, apps. These are things that they began to want, things that they didn't want prior to that. And how did they want them? Well, if you did some digging, you'll realize that they spent enough time with people who wanted the same things. So how did that happen then? Is it infectious? <laughs> the truth of the matter is, yes, it is infectious. All it takes is indoctrination. If it can be, if the mind accepts when someone else says, hey, I've got something for you and it's the best thing ever. Even if you don't accept the first time, when it's said enough times, enough number of times, you will change your mind. Anyone who's worked in advertising will know this. If you say the same thing enough times over and over and over again, people will begin to accept it. Even a lie said a hundred times will become the truth. So this is what happened. So your kid went from a state of happiness, which they were in, to a state of unhappiness or vexation. Now they begin to suffer. Because now they want. So it's this want that is the suffering. And then once you want something, you have to go through hard work. You have to go through the toiling. You have to go through the labor which is the suffering that we talked about last week, but that's not the be-all and end-all of it. There's more. I'll share with you more about that in just a moment. So it's not just the hard work, but the reason I shared that with you first, because it's the easiest one to understand. Because you know when you want something, you have to go and work hard for it, right? Things don't grow on trees, except if it's fruit. And even still, you have to go to the supermarket. So when you want something, you have to engage in activity. You have to toil, you have to work hard to get it. And once you've got it, once you've got it, folks, now you are relieved of vexation. 
that relief of vexation, that that process of relieving from vexation, it's like you know scratching that rash or curing that headache with some paracetamols. Or maybe if you're hungry and you're putting something into your, into your stomach, that relieves yourself of that hunger. The reduction of suffering or vexation is what we understand as pleasure. But that pleasure is not the same as the original happiness. Why? Let me explain. It's not one and the same thing. Here's why. When you want something, are you entirely happy once you've gotten it? 100%? It's, it's fine, just, you know, say it out loud, you know, just, just give me the straightforward answer. Most of you will go, of course, Bhante, I mean, you know, duh, if I want something and I get it, you know, that's me, I'm happy, I'm done, that's it, I'm good. Now I wanted a car, I got it, and now I'm happy. Look at me. Look at me driving in my car, and I'm, I'm, I'm ha- really happy. I'm chuffed. Really? Do you not now have a new problem? What problem might that be? What about the problem of fear? Let me explain. When you wanted a car but you didn't have a car, the problem you had was the problem of sorrow. I want something and I don't have it. Oh, sad face. That's the feeling of sorrow. There's a void. I want it, just don't have it. (laughs) Feeling terrible. All right, so let's go and do something and get it. Fine, got it. Now, sorrow has been replaced with what? Is there anything in this world that you love? Okay, think about this carefully and answer me. Answer this question for me. Is there anything in this world that you, you, you honestly and genuinely love, you care about, you really like, you endear? that you have no fear of losing, absolutely none whatsoever, anything like that? You want me to give you some examples? All right, car. If you got yourself a new car, because you really, 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 really wanted one, now you got it. So now you are relieved from the vexation of not having had a car. But did you not just move from vexation or that feeling of sorrow, of not having it, to a state of fear, whereby now you're always worried. Worried about what? Worried about all the things that could happen. To what? Well, the car, of course. What else? Are you not worried about all the things that could happen to your car? Yeah, just, just think about, if you can remember, you know, going in, walking into the showroom, the automobile showroom and buying your car, you know, just you touched it, you got into it, you know, you just enjoyed that new car smell, right? And you signed the paperwork, exchanged the money and the keys, right? And you're really, really happy and really pleased with yourself. Now you got into the car. 
feeling like, you know, that feeling of I'm a new car owner, right? You know that feeling? Now, whether it's a new car or a second-hand car, you know, you still feel like you own a new car, right? Now, you drive that car out of the showroom onto the, onto the road. What are your emotions like now? Before you walked into that showroom, you didn't have that problem, did you? The problem of fear? What might happen? What if someone just drives up and hits my car? What if the car's too low and it scratches on the ground? What if the tires roll over a sharp object? That's going to damage them. What about the paintwork? Right, if you see a bunch of rowdy kids uh, with some sharp objects in their hands walking beside your car, how does that make you feel? Doesn't your heart start, start pounding in fear? Right, if you ever had to go and park under a tree, now, if you live in a country like Sri Lanka, Wherever you park, you have to look up. Why? Because there are lots of coconut trees. So if you park under a coconut tree, oh, you're in for some big trouble. Because you never know. There are lots of coconut trees and there are lots of monkeys as well. And what do they do? They pluck the coconuts. But they don't take them home with them, unfortunately. They drop them where they pluck them. And if you've parked your car under a coconut tree, if you've ever been in that situation, ah, <laughs> this feeling of fear, you didn't have it until you owned the car. Did you? You didn't have this problem. You had a different type of problem. The different kind of problem was, I want a car, I just don't have one, and I'm feeling so sad about it. Oh, look at everyone else. You know, all my friends, they've got cars. I just don't have a car. Sad face. When will I ever get my own car? Oh, what's the problem you had? Now? Well, fantastic. Well done. You got yourself your car. How do you feel now? Over the moon? Really? Well, hold on. Come to your senses. Unbeknown to you, so secretively, surreptitiously, a new kind of emotion has crept into your mind. You can't deny. And that is the feeling of fear. Fear that something might happen and you don't know when. That's the worst thing about fear. You don't know when. You don't know when something unfortunate might happen. Now you'll say, ah, oh, Bante, don't worry about that. That's what we got insurance for. <laughs> All right. You know what? Some people take out insurance for insurance plans. Why do you think they do that? When you take out insurance, are you always 100% guaranteed and you're sure, you're absolutely sure that the insurance company will always pay up all your costs? It is, is it in the insurance company's best interests to pay every penny that you are looking to get out of the incident? No, then an insurance company wouldn't exist. They wouldn't be in business for very long. It's in their interest to 
give you as little money reimbursement as possible for the loss that you might have incurred. So you're always wondering, will they pay up? Will they pay up? Oh dear, now an accident. Will they pay up? Might they pay up? You know, sometimes some people even commit insurance fraud after an accident because they're worried that the company might not pay up. The insurance company might not pay up if they tell the truth. And insurance companies don't cover for every event. You know, look at the fine print. Acts of God, are they covered? Oh no. Riots, are they covered? Not the last time I checked. So, do you not live in fear? I'm just using one example, folks. Take any example you can think of. Anything that you love, anything that you dote on, anything that you hold dear to your heart, tell me, honestly tell me, do you not live in constant fear? From the day you owned it, from the day you began to own it, do you not, have you not always lived in constant fear of losing it or of something terrible that might happen to it? I'm, only, I'm not even just talking about material things, but what about people? Now you wanted a kid until you had the kid. What were you like? Oh, I wish I had a kid. Right? Look at all my friends. Look at my sisters and my brothers. You know, they've all got children. We don't have a child. Let's have a child. Oh, wouldn't it be nice, right? And you tried for a child, you didn't, didn't get, you know, you didn't get a child and then you went to the doctor, you did everything you possibly could think of under the sun because you wanted to relieve yourself of that vexation. And then eventually you had a child. Well done. Now what's happened? You've now moved from sorrow to fear. Do you not live in constant fear of what might happen to your children? Might they fall into bad association? Might something happen to them? Maybe an illness? Maybe an accident? Might they fail their exams? Might they perform poorly in their education? Might they fall into the bad crowd? Might they learn the wrong things? Might they not learn good habits? See? You're always living in constant fear. Why is that? It's because you want it. Getting what you want does not take away the want. It only takes away temporarily the sorrow of not having what you want. It only takes away the sorrow, not the wanting. The wanting remains because the wanting was implanted. It grew in your mind, folks, because of the indoctrinations that happened just prior to that. And for as long as the, those indoctrinations have their effect on your mind, you will not stop wanting it. The only thing that will change happens on the other side of the fence. When you don't have it, you'll be in sorrow. When you have it, you'll be in fear. So fear and sorrow. Or you could call it grief. Either. Fear, sorrow. Fear, grief. 
I will stick with sorrow, fear and sorrow. When you don't have it, you're in sorrow. When you have it, you're in fear. Why? What might happen to it? Might it be struck by lightning? Will a tsunami come and take it away from me? Might it be an earthquake? Or perhaps time? Hasn't time taken away things from you? And whenever time came knocking on your door or on the people who you loved, right? How did you feel? Was there not fear? If you walked into your, say, you know, your mother's or your father's room one day and you saw them gasping for their breath, what was the feeling that came, that overtook your mind? Was it not fear of losing them? If you've ever been there? If you haven't, well, it's only a matter of time. And then eventually and surely time will take them away from you and now you move from fear to sorrow. Why? Because want. Because of want. So no matter what it is, whether it's people, whether it's things, animate or inanimate, experiences, no matter what the case might be. If there is something you want in this world, it's impossible to be happy. Why? Because when you have it, you're in fear. When you don't have it, you're in sorrow. Fear and sorrow become your two best friends for as long as you want something. All that hard work, remember we talked about last week, to get what you want? Yes, you've got what you want. Great, you've just been relieved of sorrow. But where did you jump in? You just, you just jumped into the pool of fear. So it's like, you know, you jump from one pool to the other. Over the course of time, what's going to happen? Something's going to come and take it away from you. And now where are you back? In sorrow again. And then once you're in sorrow, then back to the drawing board. What did you do the last time you were in sorrow? Well, you took action, right? You did something to go and get it. Labor, hard work, all that. You know, it's still painful nonetheless. A ton of bricks is a ton of bricks. It's weights a ton of bricks. No matter if you want to, whether you want to carry it or not, it still weighs a ton of bricks. So it's just as painful. One might say, well, I'm more than willing, more than happy to go and do the hard work to get myself what I want. But remember... Now I'm sharing with you something you didn't know until now. What about the fear? Because you can put in all the time and effort you want, or you can even, to get what you want. But remember, you've just invited a whole lot of fear into your life. I challenge you once again. Name one thing which you truly love, which you truly care about, which you truly want, whose loss, whose destruction would mean absolutely nothing to you. It will be perfectly fine and you don't live in fear of something untoward happening to it. Can you name one thing like that? Just one? You know the answer. Now do you see why wanting is the first noble truth of suffering. 
Because once you want something, there is not a single point in time from the point of beginning to want something that you can be free of suffering altogether. Why? It'll either be sorrow or it'll be the action, the pain, the toil, the labor that you have to engage in to free yourself from sorrow. And then after all that, you're back where? In fear. And then after a period of time, something's going to come along and take away the thing that you just acquired, putting you back into sorrow. And once you're back in sorrow, well, you know the drill. You've done it before. Now what do you do? Take action again. All that hard work and labor and toil. For what? Just to put you back into fear. And then back to sorrow again. And then now over to fear again. Back to sorrow again. And over to fear again. <laughs> Life's good, isn't it? All because of wanting. If there wasn't a wanting, you wouldn't have any of this. No hard work toiling, none of that. No sorrow, no fear. Let's talk more about that when we meet again next week. So yet again, I invite you to take some time to get your head around these concepts because they may be brand new to you. And it might take a little while just to make sense of all this because it's, it's very new. It's a very new pers perspective of looking at things. But I hope I've been able to present to you this, this with rhyme and reason, with logic and rationally. None of this through blind faith. None of this because I say so. It is through evidence and through fact. We'll discuss more examples next week and, and we'll begin to make a whole lot more sense of it. Okay, so before we conclude, let us take a moment to transfer the merits that we have all acquired. Ladies and gentlemen, let us take a moment then to transfer the merits we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, chanting, pirit, listening to the Dhamma and engaging in various meritorious deeds today. And first and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching and with immense gratitude, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasikas and upasikas who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down to the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transfer these merits to our teachers and to all the monks resident at this monastery, as well as all the Anagarikas and Anagarikas attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these sermons, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them, and may through the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plane, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plane. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to our devotees, friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery to those of you who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well wishes and may through the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nimbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. 
Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our mothers and fathers, husbands, wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employees and employees, and to all those who have helped us, supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form. And by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the meritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, and primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Sambhutasasana. Let us also transfer merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may to the power of these merits they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our ancestors who have predeceased us and to all those who have been our families and friends and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in samsara and to those who have helped and supported us and assisted us in every way, shape or form they could. Let us also transfer merits to the members of the armed forces as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nations and may all those who have lost their lives in the wars be their friend or foe, rejoice in the merits that we have acquired today. And let us also transfer merits to all those who have lost their lives in natural calamities such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides and pandemics including the most recent and prevailing one, and reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been our friends and family to us in this long journey in samsara. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits to them, and may to the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the warful plains, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain, and may they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, let us all resolve that may to the power and blessings of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And finally, may through the power of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, you and I and everyone who's helped make this program a success become an arahatun vahanse, an arahatiranin in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And on that note, we will conclude today's talk. Looking forward to continuing our discussion next week. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all.